0: The words "skilled" and "unskilled" sound so neutral, but the reality is they can be used as buzzwords to enforce discrimination and to dehumanize people. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get an back from the nurses' station. Heart's still working; means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from
2: the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: What could be less political than the terms skilled and unskilled? As our guest today, author Natasha Iskander, notes, they appear as a truly neutral term, a technical matter. We think of skill as a straightforward measure of ability, experience, education, or training. But in her new book, Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond?, She argues that the terms skilled and unskilled are deeply embedded in social power structures. In Does Skill Make Us Human, she claims that skill, the way skill is defined and the way that it is used politically, is an essential definitional foundation which makes exploitation possible. The lens she uses is the very small but incredibly wealthy Middle East country of Qatar, which has seen a booming construction industry in the lead-up to this year's upcoming World Cup, which is being held there. You may have seen pictures of the incredibly futuristic, gravity-defying buildings rising up, which remind people of my age of the Jetsons cartoon show. Out of this construction boom, it's one thing to be categorized as a skilled Worker, quite another for that nine out of ten people in Qatar nowadays who are migrants who are classified as unskilled. The government is spending hundreds of billions of dollars, and here it is, 2022. Yet I am reminded of a well known book called Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman, in which black people have no rights and are essentially owned just like they were before. By companies well after slavery was abolished in law. Her book describes how such a thing could be happening in this advanced, ultra modern country like Qatar for the Federation Internationale de Football Association, or FIFA World Cup, the first time this global soccer tournament will be held in the Middle East. That's a big deal. Well, thank you for being with us, Natasha Iskander.
1: How Thank you so much, Bert, for having me on your show. Well, I'm really delighted.
0: How did you arrive at the title of your book?
1: That's a great question. Thanks for asking me about it. I um, actually arrived at the title of the book uh, somewhat accidentally. The book centered on the question of skill. But uh, the title occurred to me as I was... Um, observing something that happened in Qatar that was kind of outrageous and almost unimaginable. And this was a a marathon race organized in Qatar in 2015. And um, the press coverage of this race showed thousands of men running a marathon race in jeans and flip-flops or work boots. Um, they ran. Their feet were cut up. They, they abandoned their plastic sandals on the side of the road, and they ran this marathon in the heat of the afternoon. And on the side of the race were police and mar- and the race organizers yelling at them to continue. Um, some and it, and it turned out that the these runners were not running up because they were uh, marathon enthusiasts or athletes. They were migrant workers conscripted to run this race, taken from the labor camps where they were housed, and bussed to this race without really understanding that they were going to be running this race, and then forced to run this race in flip-flops and work boots. Um, and uh, you know, the, the migrants who were bussed to this place felt that they couldn't refuse, and they couldn't refuse because they were migrants with few rights in Qatar but still some of the migrants refused to participate and refused to get off the bus. And they were confined to the bus from early in the morning, seven in the morning to 2 p.m., 3 p.m., 4 p.m. when the race ended and uh, without food or water or bathroom breaks or anything. And when the organizer of the race was asked about this, he said, well, we wanted to keep the, the course clear and for the course to look presentable. Um, And then he conceded that the workers who he forced to run the race, he said he pressed them to keep going because a world record was at stake. They wanted to have a, a race with the highest number of runners anywhere in the world. And he said, I spoke to them very politely. And then he added, they're human as well, right? And the fact that their humanity was a question struck me so profoundly. Um, I had been doing research in Qatar and a lot of the construction sites I went to visit found that their workforces were periodically conscripted for these sporting events. Workers were put in the audience or they were forced to participate in the sporting events. And the fact that they could be pressed to engage in activities that were physically harmful to them. And then the question about their humanity should be posed so openly the title of of the book really grew out of that of that shocking reality, and so I, I started wondering: is what makes why is why is there humanity a question? And from there, the question: does skill make us human? emerged.
0: As you describe it, I'm reminded of yeah, pictures of the Roman Colosseum, where you know slaves would be uh, there for the entertainment of the. You know, elite in the audience in the stands, absolutely amazing that they they could uh, do that. It's it's uh, certainly a difference between the people in the stands and the uh, people without uh, power on the ground. And you are not Qatari. How did you end up there? And how did you know? How did you end up uh, writing this book?
1: That's a great question. I um, I'm not Qatari but I was fascinated by Qatar. Um, I'm, a migra- I'm a migration scholar and Qatar is a country that is the photo negative of the migration story, right? So in most places, um, my, the, the share of the labor force that is immigrant or migrant is a fraction, right? Maybe 10%, 15% in the U.S. were on the higher end of the global distribution of proportions. So we're at about 17% of the labor force is foreign born. Uh, in Qatar, the proportion of the labor force that is foreign born is 95%. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so it is uh, kind of the reverse story of migration. Um, so uh, Qatari nationals make up only a very small minority of the country's residents. And in fact, Qatar is the most cosmopolitan country on earth because it's filled with people from everywhere. Um, But what it allows us to see is that it allows us to tease out whether the dynamics we associate with migration are in fact a product of migration. So people arriving from somewhere else and the rights that are afforded to them in country or whether they're a a reflection of migrants' minority status. Um, And um, the other reason I went to Qatar to try and understand migration there is that there is comparatively very little research on migration to countries of the Persian Gulf and to Qatar more specifically. Um, And in fact, this region of the world is a major node for international migration. But what there was was a lot of media attention to migrant workers in Qatar and the kinds of abuses they experienced as they built the infrastructure for the 2022 World Cup. And so I was really interested in trying to understand this photo negative of the migration story and how it was connected to the labor exploitation that migrants were experiencing. Mm.
0: Yes, it seems like. An old story in an ultra-modern world. Uh, t- tell us about Qatar. I n- vaguely know where it is. Where does it fit in in, in the Arabic world? Are they aligned with the Saudis? Uh, there's the, their, the Saudi competitors, of course, is Iran. What, t- tell us about specifically, like geographically where they are and politically where they are.
1: Sure. So, Qatar is a tiny country. You know, it has a population, including its migrant population, of a little over two million. Um, as someone who lives in New York, that's, you know, less than Brooklyn or less than Manhattan, right? So, it's, it's, it's a tiny country, um, but it's a, and it's appended to Saudi Arabia. It kind of uh-huh. hangs off the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. But it's a, a lavishly wealthy country. It has the highest per capita GDP anywhere in the world. And most of that wealth, I mean, all of that wealth really mm-hmm. comes from its natural gas reserves. It has the third largest national natural gas reserves uh, in the world, and it produces 12 percent of the world's natural gas. So it's a huge player in the natural gas market. Um It has a complicated relationship with its neighbors in the Gulf and the rest of the Middle East. Um, This relationship uh, is complicated for a lot of historical reasons, but the more proximate reason for this uh, friction is uh, the region's response to the Arab Spring in 2011. So uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Jordan, a few other countries, really responded to that mass mobilization uh, for a new political system uh, in various countries around the region, they responded by doubling down on an authoritarian style of governance. Um, Qatar, in response, uh, actually funded, supported, um, and otherwise endorsed Uh, some of the uh, elements of that protest movement, namely the Muslim Brotherhood, that were trying to create different systems of governments. And this started a process of uh, friction, tension in the region and it escalated. And in 2017, um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt imposed a blockade on Qatar and cut off diplomatic ties. Uh, because of this differing vision for the Middle East future after the Arab Spring, um, that blockade was negotiated and ended in 2021. So just very recently, it was a punishing blockade, but uh, it ended. Um, another thread here is that uh, countries of the U. The countries of the the region are trying to position themselves as centers of global culture, global sports, global art. And there is a kind of regional rivalry around this. And Qatar has worked really hard to position itself as a global center for sports and culture. And its campaign for hosting the World Cup was um, just really extensive and uh, impressive. Um, The slogan for Qatar for the World Cup is expect amazing. And it has done everything it can possibly do To achieve that um, that standard.
0: Well, that's uh, it's really interesting, and I'm reminded somehow. I know a bit of history, and uh, you know, a life was like for the uh, southern slave owners. What a swell life it must have been! (laughs) Mm. It sounds sort of like that, I must say. So, yes, how, how, how did? Well, is that picture? you know, semi-accurate, do you think?
1: I think um, there is a difference in that Qatar has never uh, embraced a system or used a system of chattel slavery like the one we had in the U.S. where slavery was inherited. Uh, this Being enslaved was a status that was passed down. Um, so in Qatar, that is certainly not the case in in a contemporary sense. Um, But Qatar did adopt a system of formal bonded labor until just recently. Um, So for the decade uh, from 2010, when Qatar was awarded the World Cup hosting rights, to just very recently, a year ago, really, um, Qatar embraced a system or enacted a system of formal bonded labor in which workers were bonded, migrant workers, were bonded to their employers. Uh, Their their rights to live in the country were tied to their employment. They were unable to quit for any reason, Mm. including uh, wage theft, abuse, forced overtime. Um, Workers uh, also did not have the right to leave the country, to quit their jobs and leave the country. They required an exit visa to leave the country. Um, So uh, when I first went to Qatar in 2011, one of the remarkable things was that the, the line in customs to leave the country was far longer than the line to enter because you actually had to show that your employer gave you permission to leave the country in order to exit the country. Additionally, um, all forms of labor organizing or protest were outlawed, um, and Mm. workers who were subject to abuses had no real remedy. And so this resulted in uh, really high rates of labor exploitation, but also injury and death. Mm. Um, Because of the attention that Qatar has received due to the fact that it is hosting a global tournament, um, you know, it has received a lot of attention from human rights organizations, from the international press, and, uh, and recently from the International Labour Organization. It has made some changes to its regulatory structure. So now workers technically can quit their jobs, change their jobs, and exit the country of their own free will. Um, they still do not have the right to protest. They still do not have the right to organize, and the process of getting any redress for labor violations is still incredibly difficult. Um, I can tell you more about why these regulatory changes are uh, somewhat superficial, Hmm. but the the more important point here is that the regulatory changes happened at the tail end of the construction boom uh, for yeah. the World Cup, right? So for a decade, uh, these regulatory changes were held off, and that has been the decade when most of the construction for the the World Cup has happened.
0: How convenient. You wait to fix yes. it it's done. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about uh, Qatar and uh, what it may portend for the future in general and uh, our guest today is the author of a new book Natasha Iskander the book, the book is called does skill make us human migrant workers in 21st century qatar and beyond and you know as you talk i was wondering like why do people come there i mean if they're going to be abused I get the impression that the recruiting of what they called unskilled workers has become quite a science in Qatar. Tell us about how and where they get the workers, the criteria used, and why is it that so many people are coming there?
1: Sure. So, um, workers to construction sites in Qatar come from all over the world. they come literally from every corner of the globe that you can imagine. Some of the construction sites I was on, and, you know, these construction sites are massive, right? So it's like 10,000 men working on these construction sites. And, you know, at one construction site that I went to, one of the managers had a hobby of tallying the number of languages on the construction site and uh, reached a tally of 22 languages spoken on the construction site. So, you know, these sites were like Roman armies with people from all over the world working together without really sharing a common language in many cases. But workers from Mozambique to North Korea, from South Africa to the UK, anywhere you put your finger down on the globe is where workers in Qatar were from. Although it is, uh, it is important to note that um, a larger share of workers came from South Asia and from East Africa and uh, North Africa. So uh, why do people come? It's a really good question, right? So why do people come to Qatar? Yeah. Um, it's the question is made even more interesting when you think the fact that it costs workers um, off between $500 and $3,500 $3, to migrate to Qatar. I mean, to, to, to get the job, they have to pay recruitment fees that are really exorbitant. And for workers in Qatar, um, you know, the minimum wage is $200 a month, and the wages are not much higher than the minimum wage. Uh, it takes about a year on a two-year contract to pay off the recruitment fees. So why do workers go? And the reason that workers go is that these jobs present a marginally better option Mm -hmm. than the jobs available at home. But I wanna stress here that they're only marginally better. And in fact, the low wages have made it such that some companies are struggling to recruit workers from places that have been traditional recruitment sites uh, Some parts of India for example uh, you know they just can't recruit from Kerala for example anymore for the kinds of jobs they used to recruit for for because the wages are too low no one will come. So what have companies done right because they live and die by the ability to recruit workers they have to recruit you know on, on any given site hundreds of workers a month. Right? So it's really, uh, they, they have to focus on recruiting workers. So what companies have done is to turn their attention to places that are, have been damaged by climate change.
0: Uh-huh.
1: They, they uh, have developed a strategy that moves from recruiting people to actually recruiting places and seeking out places where fields have been damaged by endemic drought or salt poisoning from sea rise has um, made fields unproductive, or where typhoon after typhoon after typhoon has destroyed people's homes and livelihoods. So these places are uh, the places that recruiters target because the people there are now uh, newly destitute, newly poor, right? They need to work, they need cash to respond to these climate disasters, but the important piece here is that they are newly poor in many cases. So these are often communities, the communities that recruiters target, where um, these were places that had seen better days prior to climate damage, where there had been significant investment in things like education, uh, nutrition, health, other human development uh, investments. And so these are workers who uh, they can get you know, at a bargain. Right? These are workers who have the capacity to learn, the capacity to perform, the capacity to be, to be upskilled very quickly. And yet they can get them for uh, really cheap because they are confronted with this climate damage. So one of the really fascinating things for me is that. Recruiters, companies in Qatar, and the recruiters they worked with in countries of origin had really detailed data on which communities had faced climate damage mm. um, and what that climate damage looked like. Much more detailed in many cases than the available science on those communities. So, really interesting to see how companies in Qatar were using climate damage as a business resource that allowed them to recruit. You know, as a as an industry as a whole, hundreds of thousands of workers each year.
0: Wow, yeah, there's so many aspects of climate change that we don't think of, and that that's a very interesting and revealing one. and it you say in some respects, the future of Qatar portends can be observed here in the United States. The growing inequality in the US economy is justified using the political language of skill. You say that that uh, the employers use a sure. def- definition of skills in ways that weaponize climate change. Please explain.
1: The weaponization of climate change, right, is, is the use of climate damaged places to source their workers. So one of the really fascinating things about Qatari construction is that um, it's really high tech. It's at the frontier of what is possible in construction. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it requires advanced construction uh, expertise, knowledge, innovation. And the workers who are recruited uh, either have minimal experience in construction or have never been on a construction site that is as advanced, as sophisticated, as complicated as the ones in Qatar. Um, and so the sites act as these vast training systems, right? Like every single process on Katari construction sites are organized around training workers, every single interaction. And so, uh, and on a two-year contract, for example, employers will tell you the first year is spent basically training. And the second year is where we, we actually get some productivity from workers. It's just the whole system is organized as uh, you know, a massive apprenticeship system to get workers from very little construction experience to being some of the most skilled workers in construction in the world. Um, and for that, you need people who can learn and you need people who have what employers call absorptive capacity. Mm. So that means they have had some basic education um fairly sophisticated literacy, uh, education in math, education that allows them to read construction documents and construction plans. And that is why clim- climate-damaged places are so attractive because they can go to a place, say, the Khulna region in Bangladesh that has had higher rates of school en- enrollment and for longer than other places in Bangladesh But where now the economic activity, especially the agricultural activity, has been impacted by sea level rise um, and saltwater intrusion. And so people who had farms are now uh, finding that they've been displaced economically. And so Qatari recruiters can swoop in and say, "Okay, here are people who have the educational background that we're looking for the human development background that we're looking for, but we can get them at a fraction of the cost. And that's what I mean by weaponizing climate change, taking advantage of people's vulnerabilities.
0: Uh, yes, it's a long tradition, I have to say, within the system of capitalism. Uh, Lord knows. And I wonder, as you say, they're, they're, a lot of them are reasonably well-educated. Uh, they learn on the job. They get skills on the job. Their skill level improves on the job. So they become skilled workers, do they not? I mean, is it just, does the the two categories, does that remain static, skilled, and unskilled?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the things that I found was that Uh, the category of unskilled actually had very little to do with actual competence. It was a political category, not a category that actually reflected people's um, actual ability, right? So one of the really fascinating things for me was to talk to managers and supervisors on these construction sites. So as I mentioned, these were vast training systems, but they were also highly detailed training systems. So supervisors knew exactly how fast people were learning, where the weaknesses were. They, they did rounds several times a day to understand uh, what the learning gaps were. Um, so really highly granular and detailed understanding of the actual expertise level, the actual skill level of workers on their site. And, and you know, as I said, these workers became masters in their trades. Mm. And yet when I asked managers about their workers they uniformly describe them as unskilled and this tension between you know a really granular understanding of the actual uh, skill level of their workers and the category of unskilled made me think okay this is not about skill this is about a political category and and once i started looking at this i noticed um just how much qatari society Uh, was organized around these categories. So one of the really interesting things about the coverage of the working conditions in Qatar was that the press said and human rights organizations said these labor abuses are possible and occur because Qatar hires workers, recruits workers, uh, allows them to reside in the country under something called the kafela system, which was a system of bonded labor. But in fact, all workers in Qatar are under the same kafala system, so everyone from you know, the street sweeper to the CEO of a company, all of them were recruited under the same system. Uh, whether you were a professor, a doctor uh, or a construction worker, you were recruited under the same legal framework. But Certainly CEOs, doctors, professors were not experiencing the same kinds of labor abuses that workers were. So when I started to look at this, I saw just how much Qatari society was organized around these lines, um, really strikingly and visibly so. So, for example, uh, Qatar has regulations that segregate workers who are labeled unskilled uh, to certain parts of the country. So uh, uh, workers who are described as unskilled are banned from living uh, formally, by law, from areas that the Qatari government uh, describes as, quote-unquote, family areas. Mm -hmm. And you can go to the government website, and there is a map, color-coded, Uh, indicating which areas of the country, which areas of Doha in particular, unskilled workers are banned from. Uh, They are uh, formally excluded from those places. Um, They are uh, not permitted to enter public spaces except for certain prescribed times of uh, the week. Uh, Most of those times are times where workers are working. Um, So they're essentially banned from public spaces in Qatar and confined to uh, areas of the city on the outskirts of the capital, an area in particular called the industrial area, which is zoned for industrial uses, factories, cement factories in particular, storage of cranes and uh, other earth movers and other construction uh, equipment, and labor camps. Um, and the the census for Qatar uh, has close to half a million workers living in an area uh, uh, like 10 kilometers squared. It's the, the population of this um, industrial area is 99.9% male. It is a storage area for labor and workers are confined to these Uh, labor camps, some of which are pretty abysmal in the kind of living conditions they offer workers.
0: Wow. Interesting. So half a million out of a general population of two million. That's pretty significant. And for for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, maybe uh, the shape of things to come here in the United States and other uh, parts of the Western world. Our guest is Natasha Iskander, who's got a new book out, Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century in Qatar and Beyond. And I wonder how the government uh, felt about what you were doing. Did Did they know what you were up to? And... How did you get access to these construction sites? And tell us about that process, please, and and what the government may have thought about it, or did you just sneak under their radar?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't sneak under their radar. I was very careful uh, in organizing my research. Um, I wanted to ensure that I did it in a way that was safe and ethical for everyone involved. Um, One of the things that I did was that I uh, applied for... Uh, a research grant from the Qatari government um, in a bid to make sure that it was transparent to everyone what I was doing. Um, So I got a grant from the Qatar National Research Foundation uh, that was organized on the premise of looking at working conditions and skill development on Qatari construction sites. Um, I uh, got the grant and then I went and I met with People in government, uh, people in the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy, which is the organization that has managed the construction process uh, for uh, in anticipation of FIFA of uh, the World Cup, and um, and I went to talk to managers and architects and consultants who were uh, were organizing the construction process for various sites around qatar and i got their permission to uh, come to their construction sites and to interview workers uh, even to visit labor camps um, one of the things that i found uh surprising actually was that there was a a lot of openness to the research initially um, People, Because companies lived and died based on how well they trained their workers, managers at these companies were were really interested in understanding and reflecting on their own training process and how they could improve it. Um, And so there was a lot of openness, willingness, um, honest discussion about the challenges of upskilling workers um, and how this translated into difficulties in manpower management is what they called it. Um, and uh, on construction sites I uh, was able to interview workers Um, I was able to shadow them as they worked for hundreds of hours on the construction sites and to interview them also um, in their labor camps and in multiple languages the research was conducted in 8 different languages because of the variety of national backgrounds of the workers on these construction sites Um, and uh, The the work actually, the research was able to happen at a time when uh, some of the questions around labor conditions for workers in Qatar were becoming more and more sensitive, um, as there was an increase in um, press attention and human rights attention to some of these questions around labor exploitation and documented cases of wage theft, injury, death, um, the research became increasingly sensitive. And after the first year of fieldwork in Qatar, and here just to open a parenthesis, the research for this book was, uh, took place in Qatar, but it also took place in sending countries, uh, India, Nepal, uh, and the Philippines in particular. The research in Qatar uh, had to be cut short. um, To try and make a kind of complicated regulatory story simple, Uh, all research uh, is covered by something called a human subjects protocol, where you as a researcher commit to protecting the confidentiality of your informants, of the people who you speak with. Um, And I was very careful to do that. Once, that, once my ability to maintain the confidentiality of my informants was threatened by government actions, I left Qatar and I uh, terminated my contract with the Qatar National Research Foundation because I would not conduct research uh, under pressure or threat that I would not be able to protect the confidentiality of my informants.
0: Whoa! So were they? I, I I don't know if you recorded your uh, writing on paper, you know, in a notebook or whatever, or if it was in some kind of uh, you know electronic form. And I wonder if uh, there was any threat to uh, take that stuff from you. Yeah, you
1: know, one of the <laughs> one of the challenging things is that in the background of you know while I was conducting this research, there were several instances where researchers who were conducting You know, a fraction of the research that I was conducting, not going to construction sites, not going to labor camps, were being picked up, detained. Uh, Researchers and, and press, actually journalists, were being picked up and detained and held in detention until they turned over their raw data. Uh, and I, I didn't want to be in that position.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so, uh, right. So w- a couple of the measures that I took, uh, were to upload absolutely everything uh-huh. onto a server in New York yeah. good thinking. <laughs> at my university. Yeah. Uh, password protected. Nothing was local. Uh, as, and I, and I destroyed all of my paper notes and I kept everything on a remote server, uh, at, at NYU. Um, One of the things that started to make me very nervous was that the Qatari government started asking me for um, access to those servers and to my passwords. And then I just uh, started to get that uh, combined with some gestures of intimidation made me feel like it was impossible to continue the work safely.
0: Wow, you made it out. That's that's a good thing. And yeah you know there are some you know i I'm in the u s. The show uh, largely plays in the u s. We have listeners around the world, but I wonder, you know, as you say, there are lessons to be learned here for the world as as you say, Qatar provides a window into our future and a warning about how political definitions of skill will be used to shape it. end of your quote. and you know there's been a long ugly history of maltreatment of immigrants in the U.S. For example, our former Orange One, president uh, <laughs> who shall remain unnameless, he had a blatantly racist fantasy of a wall to keep out the lesser people. But but it's, it's the most recent example, and you say, again, that the future of Qatar pretends. Uh, that it can be observed here, the growing inequality in the U.S. economy is justified using the political language of skill, using that in the place of actual political power as an explanation. So, so what do you mean there? How is inequality in the U.S. economy uh, justifying itself using the political language of skill?
1: Sure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off your question first to say that. Um, The story of the difficulty of doing research on uh, worker rights for migrants in Qatar is a story that is replicated, and especially under the Trump administration, for researchers in the U.S. doing research on migrant rights. Um, There are many examples of researchers and journalists being subject to forms of intimidation, uh, illegal search, and even uh, short-term detention. Um, because of their research, so the kinds of pressures I encountered in Qatar are increasingly common for people who do research on migrant rights everywhere in the world. Sorry to interrupt,
0: but is that in the U.S. too? That
1: is in the U.S. too, right? So, workers—I mean, researchers who do work on uh, migrant detention, uh, uh, specifically, especially uh, migrant rights at the border. Um, uh, with the Remain in Mexico program in particular, have been subject to all sorts of intimidation by uh, U.S. authorities. Um, So it's important to note that while Qatar is uh, a place where these kinds of intimidation happen, it is not the only place. So that's one way in which there are commonalities. But your question is a broader one, and so I want to address that and say that Kata really isn't unique. The political language of skill, uh, you know, skill as a political category rather than as a category that maps onto expertise, is spoken everywhere. And it's used to structure and stratify our society. And we use it to justify growing inequality in our economy. Um you know, we use the language of skill to justify uh, the, the, the fact that people who are growing wealthier have skills in demand, we call them knowledge workers, and we say that middle and working classes are losing ground because they're quote-unquote unskilled or don't have the right kind of skill. Um, but, you know, the political story here is that um, we tend to dehumanize uh, people who are unskilled and we attribute their losing economic ground to the fact that they don't have skill or that we claim that they don't have skill. And um, because skill is so believable and so seemingly neutral as a concept, we can it becomes a lot easier to overlook things like tax policy, stagnant minimum wage levels that are now lower in real terms than they were in the 70s. Uh, the growing power of businesses, the kneecapping of unions, and so on. I mean, we can just say it's it's that these workers who are losing ground just don't have the skills, and the one percent or the five percent are increasing their wealth because they are so valuable to our society. But what what really where it really starts to become brutal is when skill joins with other markers of social difference that are used to dehumanize and control like immigration status or race or gender. Um, and you can see this really clearly, especially clearly in immigration policy. Um, so, you know, not only have we seen, especially under the Trump administration, an increase in proposals for merit-based uh, immigration systems. This was Stephen Miller's pet project, right? We're going to shift from Uh, family-based immigration to merit-based immigration, where we're only going to let in skilled people who we call skilled migrants. Um, And, you know, it was very clear that this was actually a proxy for race. Um, But, you know, skill narratives, uh, they are really profound, even beyond immigration policy. And they uh, shape how we understand the humanity and the rights of people who are immigrants who are called unskilled. So, if you think about immigrants who are picked up by ICE, who are detained and deported, um, they're widely assumed to be unskilled, even though skill has nothing to do with immigration, immigration status. You know, a doctor or an investment banker who falls out of status is just as undocumented as a construction worker or a home healthcare aide. But it is really difficult to imagine immigrants in detention being doctors or bankers or other white collar workers that we place in the skilled column. And so, you know, as part of this, this is part of the reason that you don't see, you know, huge opposition and outrage across the political spectrum at the deeply dehumanizing practices in immigration detention. So we need to really start to pay attention to the way that this concept of skill as a political category enters our political life. It's, it seems so neutral and so apolitical, but it is not, it's laden with all of these meanings. And once we decide that a person is unskilled, we, whether we are conscious of it or not, um, and in ways that are separate from their actual skill, they become dehumanized. And that dehumanization makes it possible for them to be subject to treatment that is uh, in violation of their basic rights and for it not to be um, as shocking in the political sphere and as mobilizing as it should be.
0: Wow, interesting how it becomes a a word that... uh it uniquely serves to justify exploitation and treating whole categories of people as less than. Yikes, ugly stuff, but we need to learn it. We need to learn from uh, reality and our history. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we are talking with Natasha Iskander, who is Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Public Policy at New York University's Wagner School of public service. Nice part of the city, I must say. Uh, And we, we, so we use the skill, you know, we imagine, as you say, the way we value skill is unrelated to the way we value persons. Anyone can become more skilled if they want to. If they don't, that's their choice. Do you think, I I can't imagine this applies only to Qatar, but the capitalist economy in general, that that use of the word skill is... uh, very uh, clever, I must say. Footballers from all over the world will be at the World Cup in Qatar. They, of course, do not see the exploitation. But what about the countries and regions they represent? Has there been any awareness, do you think, of the injustice? And has world opinion made itself known at all with regard to this? What, and, and what about the responsibility of FIFA or FIFA itself? Do they not have a moral responsibility how they select host countries and how they use labor in order to build the infrastructure necessary to host games. What about that world pressure?
1: So, uh, you know, FIFA definitely has a responsibility, a moral responsibility uh, regarding the the labor conditions and rights of the people who uh, build the infrastructure to host their games. Um, But, you know, in Qatar, FIFA was not enormously influential as an organization in shaping working conditions. It shone a spotlight on Qatar for sure. And I think that was somewhat unintentional. But um, the spotlight brought international scrutiny to the labor conditions after the World Cup was awarded. And uh, that scrutiny has continued for really the intervening decade. Um, and has become uh, more acute at different points in the story. So certainly there was a lot of attention after the World Cup hosting rights, uh, a lot of mobilization by human rights organizations, by labor groups, and even by some uh, sporting coalitions. Um, and, uh, you know, in a, this this attention actually led to important reforms in Qatar. It went, Qatar went from having a framework for migrant labor that, as I said, was a kind of a formal system of bonded labor to one in which uh, workers, you know, on paper at least, are hired under systems that look a lot like our H-1B, H-2A visas. Uh, in some ways, even more rights afforded to those workers because they can't change jobs, but Immigrants hired under H two A, H two B, H one B in the U S are not able to change jobs at will. Mm. Okay, but but now as um, as the games are nearing, right? As as we are, you know, Qatar has erected this enormous countdown clock on its shores, counting down the the days, hours, minutes, and seconds toward the kickoff time. Uh, on November 21st uh, this year, um, now the scrutiny has has emerged once again. And mm-hmm. there are some sort of these global reflections on what it means to play the beautiful game in beautiful stadia yeah. constructed by workers who had no rights and who were subject to labor abuses. And so there are um, many uh, prominent uh, as, you know, footballers and sporting activists who are calling for attention to this question. Um, and, you know, various instances of government for countries uh, that are playing in the games, really taking a close look at the conditions under which workers were hired and used. Um, and, you know, on, on some level, this attention, um, you know, while it will do very little to undo the labor exploitation and certainly very little to heal the injury and uh, undo the deaths of workers uh, on construction sites in Qatar. Um, They are energizing a global conversation Uh about worker rights. And that is a really important conversation. Um, uh, because it broadens the understanding of worker rights past a national framework and says, we are all globally responsible for working conditions around the world. Um, You know, the hope and certainly my hope is that the conversations that began in Qatar will continue um, and extend uh, into the next world cup, which will be hosted by Mexico, us and Canada. Um, we certainly have a lot of work to do around working conditions and worker rights in this country, as well as in Mexico and Canada. And so to the extent that the conversations that began in Qatar can continue and extend and even grow uh, to help us address uh, labor violations in our own countries uh, would be enormously helpful and uh, and. Uh,
0: really fantastic. Yeah, hopefully we can learn from history every now and then that happens. And, you know, it's it's a long tradition in, in uh, capitalism that big employers set worker against worker by their nationality. Nationalism is a convenient way to divide workers. Is there any sign that the workers in Qatar are displaying any cross-national solidarity? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, one of the fascinating things is that um, you know protests are outlawed in right Japan. right uh, but what i found was that on all of the sites i went to there were wildcat protests and yeah. a wildcat protest is a protest that is uh spontaneous but but more formally defined as a protest that is not sanctioned by a union so there are no unions in qatar so by definition all protests are wildcat protests <laughs> And so, some of these protests were tolerated, right? They were, they were short, they would last a few days, workers would stay at the labor camp, they wouldn't get on the buses. And, you know, employers tolerated these wildcat protests, although the minute there was any kind of protest or resistance on site, you know, employers shut it down. Um, but what was really fascinating to me was that when I start to look at these protests, Employers only tolerated these protests when they were confined to a single nationality. So if workers from, uh, say, Bangladesh all organized at a site and it was only Bangladeshi workers, then, you know, the health and safety staff who were responsible for managing these, these, uh, these labor protests. It was so remarkable to me that the health and safety staff tended to be ex-military, uh, UK and South African ex-military um, but, you know, they would, they would allow workers to kind of what they call blow off steam. Uh-huh. But the minute these protests uh, reflected cross-national solidarity, uh-huh. so let's say, uh, you know, the Bangladeshi protesters uh, joined forces with the Ethiopian workers at their labor camp and they all decided to stay back and not go to work then the protests became a real threat to the company. They couldn't rely on national divisions anymore to maintain labor discipline. And so they just deported everyone, like literally within hours. They just deported all of the workers they felt were trouble troublemakers and all of the workers often from a certain nationality, um,
2: yeah.
1: you know, within hours and, and with no notice. Uh, but what was really interesting was that Workers use some of the training practices, some of the learning and teaching practices to form other kinds of resistance and solidarity so that they, in learning and teaching one another, formed uh, really tight relationships of care to the point where on site they would call each other across nationality, uncle, brother, little brother, and then they cared for each other on site, so they would do things like uh, make sure that uh, their co-workers were not experiencing heat stress, uh, covering for, for workers when they started to experience heat stress, or uh, making cross-national arguments to their supervisors about why they weren't going to work at night, for example, when visibility was poor, or why working more than 12 hours would lead to unsafe working conditions and lead to higher rates of injury. But those were not work stoppages. They were cross-national skill-based protests where workers used their expertise to make arguments uh, against some uh, working conditions that they could say based on their skill were unsafe or unproductive, right? This is not a a, a protest that leads to revolution, right? Right. So this kind of skill-based resistance, but it it kept workers alive, right? Like there's been a lot of attention to the fact that um, thousands of workers have died on these construction Uh sites or in this construction industry. But for me, the really compelling question is why more workers didn't die? And the, the answer to that question is that workers cared for one another and organized these forms of skill-based resistance to maintain a modicum of safety that allowed them to go back home alive.
0: Well, a lot of people around the world have long thought that uh, international worker solidarity hmm, is a very powerful thing, and that nationalism does divide people. Well, very interesting stuff, and I'm hoping that uh, we in the U.S. can learn from this and about the power of the words skilled and unskilled and, and see through it. Natasha Iskander, author of Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in the 21st Century, Qatar and Beyond. Thank you so much for being with us today, and hopefully we across the world can learn from this. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bert. It was really a pleasure to be able to share some of the findings from the work.
2: Oh, rise, ye prisoners of starvation. Arise, oh, ye wretched of the earth. For justice under condemnation. Oh, He saves no more in The earth shall rise on new foundations. We have been not, be. we shall be all.